0: So who is Sarah, anyway, and how is she an exemplar of faith? Greetings. My name is Ethan. I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're Disciples Making Disciples uh, on the, in Los Angeles. We are so glad that you have joined us, and thank you for the gift of spending time with us as we continue to explore more of what God has made known through Christ and in Scripture. We encourage you to continue our discussion uh as you have opportunity and to let us know what you think and you can also subscribe to us where you found us and you can find out more about us at adventurerscriss.org we're also on facebook instagram tiktok and twitter what we can know about sarah can be found in the book of genesis the stories particularly in genesis 11:27 through 23:19 and the rest of anything else that's said in scripture about sarah is rooted in what is told there The book of Genesis is generally believed to have been written by Moses, thus it had been written somewhere between 1450 or 1250, depending on one's view of the Exodus. Uh, But the book never explicitly identifies Moses as the author, nor does any scripture explicitly identify him as the author, so we will speak of the Genesis author. And there's a lot of scholars who would date it to much later, but we're going to see that a lot of the customs that are being described um, aren't even customs that would have been something familiar to Uh, Moses in the late Bronze Age, let alone uh, to people even later into the Iron Age. We have to be honest that there are no contemporaneous, specific, explicit, extra-biblical references to Sarah. However, there are some archaeological discoveries that we've made that allow us to understand the cultural context that kind of helps bring to light some of the things going on in this story. If we are following and looking at the biblical chronology as laid out, regarding the kings and their relationship with the judges and the exodus, and those before the exodus, we would therefore suggest Sarah would live sometime toward the end of the third millennium BC. So around 2000 BC, perhaps specifically 2140 to 2013 BC, and this is a very contentious time. Some would date her a lot later, Uh, but What we see about her in the Genesis narrative makes better sense in the Mesopotamian and Canaanite context at the end of the 3rd millennium, much more than the middle of the late Bronze Age. And this is a time of great transition in the ancient Near East. In Egypt, the Old Kingdom, as we call it, and the Akkadian Empire, Mesopotamia had collapsed in the 22nd century BC. So, uh, around the time of birth, a little bit before that, uh, likely at least in part because of what we now call the 4.2 kill a year event, which is a major dry spell in the ancient Near Eastern world that led to severe famine and political collapse. If it tells you anything in the uh, descriptions around Giza and some of the um, Uh, Sculptures and the uh, reliefs we find around there, we see what looks like a savanna context. That that's the way it was before in Egypt, uh, and then uh, after this Kill It Year event, uh, it is the way that we see it now, a a complete desert. And so we can imagine that that would have led to a lot of transitions, a lot of difficulties, and we use that to define the difference between what's called the Early Bronze Age and the Middle Bronze Age. And that would have involved a lot of disruption and migrations. And to understand Sarah's world, Sarah is the daughter of Terah. She is brother of Nahor and Haran and Abram. Uh her is is uh, going on here. Uh that he will make it clear that they do share a father although they are born from different mothers. So yes, uh Sarah is the half sister of Abram. Abram is her half brother. And they're all from Ur of the Chaldeans in Genesis 11:24 through 28. Uh, And according to Joshua 24 and verse 2, Terah was an idolater. And so, Sarah is likely contemporary with the last great independent kingdom of Ur, which was a Sumerian city, the third dynasty of Ur. And thus, Ur would have been one of the most cosmopolitan and prosperous cities of the time. According to Genesis 11, Terah had the intention for his whole family group to go to Canaan, but he only got as far as Haran. Haran, in modern-day Turkey, near the Syrian border, is at the northernmost point of what we consider the Fertile Crescent, called Aram Naharaim, Aram between the rivers in Upper Mesopotamia, which means that uh, both Abraham and Sarai will be understood and known as Arameans by, uh, by uh, nationality. Sarah would go on to Canaan in Egypt, led by Abraham, as we will see in the Genesis story. And Canaan would have been a cultural backwater in the early and middle Bronze Age, a collection of city-states, even though Egypt's right there. Egypt has not really been in empire-building mode to that extent, uh, and would not get into the area of the Levant there until the days of the New Kingdom, closer to Moses' time. Uh, So it's the Mesopotamian kings who tend to be the ones coming and trying to dominate, like we can see in Genesis 14, and um, their ideas and and cultural aspects are oriented more toward Mesopotamia. And Egypt was undergoing the convulsions of the collapse of the centralized state at the end of the 6th dynasty, entering into what we call the First Intermediate Period. A pharaoh would likely have been ruling from Heraclopolis over Lower Egypt. And the picture of Sodom and Gomorrah, given in Genesis 13, would indicate a time where the land was a lot better watered and fertile than would be true and seen in later generations, which is consistent with the climate data that we have uncovered. So Sarah is living at this transitional time that would be very foreign to Moses and the Israelites, and even more so to those who come in David's days and later. Uh, A time of idolatry, a collapse of the golden ages of Egypt and Mesopotamia, and just before the Amorites would come in and take over everything. So Sarah's life is told, as we said, in Genesis eleven twenty-seven 27 through 23, 19. Her name was originally Sarai. It's later changed by God to Sarah in Genesis 17, 15. Now, for consistency's sake, we're going to refer to her as Sarah throughout. Both terms mean princess. We do not know much about Sarah's early years, that she lived in Ur, certainly, moved to Haran at some point with her half-brother and family. And we should assume they're all idolaters, based on the testimony in Joshua 24 and verse 2 that she married her half-brother Abraham, and the circumstances around that are not uh, recognized and not talked about, and it is testified that she was childless for years. That in Genesis 12, God spoke with Abraham when he was 75 years old, promised he would make him a great nation, and would bless those who bless him, curse those who curse him, be a blessing for all the families of the earth if he would go out from his country and family to where God would show Abraham to go. And Abraham went, and with Abraham went Sarah. When they got there, or soon after, we're not told exactly when, but at some point soon after, there was a severe famine in the land, and so they went down to Egypt. Sarah obeyed Abraham's request and kept up the half-truth that she was his sister because she was still beautiful, and Abraham was concerned they would kill him to have her if they knew she was her, he was her husband. Excuse me, She was taken by Pharaoh's wife and returned to him when the truth was made known. The next thing that we see about uh, Abraham and Sarah, particularly in chapter 16, is Sarah is following a custom of the time, where uh, in a situation like Sarah has, where she is childless, according to Mesopotamian law, uh, her husband had the right to put her away, to divorce her, because she, she was not producing an heir. But that law did give provision for a woman like Sarah, to give another woman as a proxy wife to her husband and to claim the child born of that union as her own. And that is exactly what happens. He gives uh, her Egyptian slave Hagar to Abraham to have proxy children. She conceives. Uh, Now Sarah feels slighted by Hagar, and Abraham allowed her to do with Hagar as she desired, indicating that Abraham wasn't going to act like because uh, she was uh, now a, a wife that she had any kind of equivalence to Sarah, uh, she, he very much considered Hagar still the slave of Sarah. So um, uh, Hagar uh, was treated very harshly, and the angel told her to go back when she was um, had run away and submit to Sarah, her mistress, and Hagar would bear Ishmael to Abraham when he was 86 years old. At 99 years of age, Yahweh appeared again to Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis, and he affirmed the covenant. uh, As Abraham was turned into Abraham, Sarai was renamed Sarah, and her fruitfulness was promised. Abraham did not have any expectation to have a son with Sarah, and wanted to know why Ishmael could not live before Yahweh. Um, She was almost 90, and Abraham almost 100. This is where we learn that she is, in fact, a decade younger than Abraham. Uh, Now, soon after, in chapter 18, Yahweh and two angels will appear as men before Abraham. And Abraham went and told Sarah to make bread. And he made a calf and milk for their guests to eat. They asked Abraham where Sarah was and well she's in the tent. And they confirmed their promise that she would have a son of the next year. Sarah is close enough that she could hear from the tent. And she, uh, it says the text says, laughed or internally laughed, hearing it, thinking she was worn out. How could she have pleasure, especially since her husband is so old? And then Yahweh. Who is, who is one of these three quote-unquote men, asked Abraham why Sarah laughed. Sarah lied, saying she didn't laugh. Yahweh affirmed, oh, yes, you did laugh. And this is the only recorded conversation between Yahweh and Sarah. And we'll have some more talk about that in a minute. After there was an incident in Gerar in the Negev with Abimelech, like there was in Egypt with Pharaoh, it all happened as Yahweh promised. And Sarah bore Abraham a son, Isaac, when Abraham was 100, and Sarah 90. Sarah was very protective of Isaac, and when Isaac was weaned and Ishmael was seen mocking him, Sarah demanded Abraham to banish Hagar and Ishmael. Didn't make Abraham happy, but God told him to listen to his wife, and he thus banished Hagar and Ishmael, uh, and no longer would Hagar and Ishmael be hanging around Abraham and Sarah's tents. At some unspecified point after this, but before Sarah dies, we have the Akedah in Genesis 1-18 where uh, God tells Abraham to go sacrifice Isaac, Abraham goes, takes Isaac up there, has a knife over his head, and then the angel says, okay, you will do that, don't do it. Uh, we now know you could and you would. Uh, here's a ram to offer instead, and I will bless you, and and, and you will be a father of faith for many, gen- for many nations. And then in chapter 23, we learn that Sarah dies at 127. So Isaac is around 37 years old. Uh, Abraham bought the cave of Machpelah in which to bury her, and it would be the only land in Canaan that he would ever own. So this is what we can see in the story about who Sarah is, but what does it mean? Well, Sarah is seen as an exemplar of faith. Abraham is the father of many nations. He's the recipient of the promise so that those who enter into God's covenant must be descendants of Abraham by faith. And this is something that's going to be reinforced throughout the rest of the Bible. But interestingly, Peter will, will have this comment, First Peter chapter 3 and verse uh, 5 and 6, when he's talking to Christian wives. In the same way, the holy women who hoped in God long ago adorned themselves by being subject to their husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You become her children when you do what is good and have no fear in doing so. So notice that Peter will make reference to the holy women of old, and he specifically identifies Sarah. And he says that if you kind of... Uh, do what is good and have no fear in doing that, you become her children, i.e. that you also receive the inheritance uh, which is promised to the descendants of Abraham and Sarah. Because we have to remember that, yes, Isaac becomes a child of promise, uh, but he's the, the promise, therefore, means that it, not just as much Abraham, but also Sarah, since Sarah is uh, producing 50% of the genetic material that leads to Isaac, right? And so Sarah is very much a part of that even if it's not made explicit in the text as much. And that's how we can consider Sarah as a holy one of old an exemplar of faith. And we can even go so far as to say, in conclusion, the Bible doesn't come out and say it explicitly, but she has greater faith than her husband. And the reason we say that is we, let's look at the trajectory of Sarah's life and the way Sarah's faith developed. Again, uh, from what we can tell, Tara was an idolater that... There's no reason to believe that Abraham and Sarai, when they're growing up, are anything but idolaters. That's what they knew. That's where they lived. That was everything that they understood. The only direct encounter that Sarah has with Yahweh, according to the text, is in Genesis 18. And he's appearing before her in human form. Now, we might assume that Abraham and Sarah figured out quickly their guests were more than simple strangers passing through, but that would be an educated guess. We can't be totally sure. So since she is an idolater, she'd be an idolater for most of her life, at least half her life, 65. That's when the call comes to go and leave. Um, But when Abraham hears from God, Sarah now will believe in the God of her husband, Abraham. By the age of 76, in Genesis 16, Sarah will say that Yahweh has kept her from having children. And then, when everything went wrong with her and Hagar, uh, Sarah said, May Yahweh judge between you and me, in Genesis 16 and verse 5. And therefore, as manifestly, made his faith her own. It is true that in Genesis 11 through 23, the main story is of the character, excuse me, main character of the story is Abraham. But it's really important for us to consider what. Uh, everything he went through, through the eyes of Sarah, and Sarah who's going along with him. So in Genesis 12, again, she lived in cosmopolitan Ur, having already moved to the hinterlands in Haran of Aram Naharaim. and all of a sudden, Abraham comes home one day and says, Hey, I heard a voice, It it's God, it's God who told me that if I take, pick up and leave everything, leave our family, leave our homeland, and go to Canaan, he will bless me and make me a father of many nations. Uh, you can imagine Sarah's reaction to that. And yet she trusted and went. In Genesis 13, they've gotten to the land. Uh, there's the land uh, of Canaan to the west and the lands around south to the east. The lands of the east are well watered like Eden, the text says. And Abraham comes home one day and says, Sarah, yeah, uh, my nephew and I are just getting too big. I let him take whatever he picked and he picked uh, the land of the east, which she would know is a better land. How would she have felt about that? In Genesis 14, uh, Abraham takes his men and goes to fight the Mesopotamian king's redeem Lot and his family. How did Sarah feel about all that? In Genesis 15, Yahweh confirms that Abraham would have an heir. And we know how Sarah felt about it. Because she hears that, and she then gives Hagar to Abraham to have children by proxy in Genesis 16. uh, Thinking, well, if he's supposed to have children, I'm not having children. I better find a way to help make sure that he has children which we can take a step back and see as a misdirect and, and actually a lack of faith in God's promises. But it was done with the best of intentions. It's a good warning for us. We need to keep in mind that it was an act that was not being done contrary to faith, but according to faith. And Genesis 17, you know, Yahweh confirms that, yep, the covenants with Abraham, that he that Abraham would have a son through Sarah. And the way that she responds in Genesis 18 suggests that she did not exactly get her hopes up. It's an open question about Genesis 22, the whole Akedah experience. What did Sarah find out about it and when? Uh, But if she did get word about what happened and the fact that uh, uh, her husband had taken her most precious only child and was about to slaughter him before Yahweh, how would she have felt about it? Now, in Hebrews 11, 8 through 16, Sarah is mentioned along with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And... When we look at the first Peter three six reference, we can recognize her the de- deprivation that she she experienced as part of the faith, right? She had enjoyed a relatively subtle life with homes in Ur and Haran, and sick for sixty five years. But her final sixty two years were as a sojourner, living in tents, never owning any property, and never having any kind of fixed stability. Now Isaac and Jacob would never know any better. That was a the life they were born into. But Sarah did. Sarah did know differently, and yet she endured. So we can see the great faith Sarah has. She didn't have all the direct personal experiences that the Yahwehs Abraham did, and every decision Abraham would make affected her as well. But she followed, and now we reckon her as among the holy women. what's well, interesting when we look at that First Peter three and verse six passage. Peter commends Sarah for uh, her subjection to her husband and calling him Lord, which is being rooted in Genesis eighteen twelve in the Hebrew text Adoni in the Greek text Kyrios. And there's a lot to consider when it comes to Sarah's relationship with Abraham, and it sometimes kind of makes Peter's reference seem kind of funny. So, we did know that Sarah obeyed and did follow Abraham in all his wanderings. But it's a good question to ask. What other choice did she have, realistically? And... When we especially look at Abraham and Sarah, we have to draw much more attention to the escapades we find in Genesis 12, 10 through 18, and chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. In these situations, Abraham is twice concerned for his life because of Sarah's beauty, and by the way, her beauty at 65 and 89 years old, no less. And he therefore wants to establish the conceit that she is his sister, and to neglect to mention the wife bit it's very important for us to keep in mind that when he's called out for it in genesis chapter 20 at no point does yahweh abimelech or Abraham anybody assign guilt to sarah about this the responsibility for the person who is responsible for all of this is on abraham's shoulders what's interesting though is while the burden, the responsibility is on Abraham's shoulders. The The burden itself, the actual things being done and going on, falls on her. Because she is the one taken to become part of Pharaoh's and Abimelech's households. And in reality, into their harems. In Genesis chapter 20, verses 3 through 7, a whole lot in that story is made of the fact that Abimelech had not gone near her. that That he did not have sexual relations with that woman. And, of course, that's such an important fact because we're going to find out that she's going to conceive and have a son. And right on the heels of this whole Abimelech affair, you'd be very easily assumed that, well, if she all of a sudden gets pregnant after all this, it wasn't because of Abraham. It was because of Abimelech. So you've got all of this commentary here. I did not touch her. You know I did not touch her. And God replies, Yes, I know you have not done this. I kept you from sinning against me, and why I did not allow you to touch her. That God, in fact, has to directly intervene to keep this from happening. What's very interesting, is we go back to chapter 12, is that no such statement is made when it comes to Pharaoh, which lends a lot of credibility to the conclusion that Pharaoh did have relations with Sarah, treated her as his wife, which he had every expectation to think was done in good faith and according to good conscience, because she was suggested to him, her to Pharaoh as the sister of Abraham. Now in Genesis twenty, and verse thirteen, Abraham explains that he had asked Sarah to show him this loyalty, to say that she was his sister in these circumstances. So ostensibly, both knew what this kind of loyalty was going to require of them, because both would know that if they said she is his sister, there would be interest, and that they would marry her, and they would do the things married people do. And she agreed to go along with it. So there's a whole lot of stuff going on in this relationship, and that is maybe why there's a lot of... uh, You see with the whole Genesis 16 affair and everything else, uh, how... Sarah absolutely seems to kind of put her foot down on things. Um, And and even that escapade tells us a lot there in Genesis 16 and chapter 21, uh, that she was probably obtained during their sojourn, in Egypt Hagar was. And it was Sarah's idea in the text that uh, Abraham would take Hagar as wife to have children by proxy, and Abraham was obedient to it. Um, And we've talked about what's motivating that, which could be a very real apprehension of fear that eh, I could be kicked out here. I, I might lose my standing. I need to do something about this. However, the theological take is that you know that she has recognized that Yahweh's promised Abraham that he's going to have kids, and this is the way of making sure it happens. Now, all the grief and suffering Sarah's going to experience because of Hagar and Ishmael, according to this take, is a consequence of her attempt to intervene in God's working and do it her and handle it herself. Uh, something that could have been easily avoided if she had just had more faith, right? Uh, that it's an uh, interference in Yahweh's purposes. Uh, regardless, uh, Sarah would quickly come to regret that decision. Now, Abraham didn't privilege Hagar Hagar's wife and consider Sarah under Sarah's authority, which led to Sarah treating Hagar harshly so that she would leave. Her protagonist of Isaac and disdain for Ishmael is seen well in Genesis 21. Abraham isn't pleased with what Sarah wanted, but God encouraged him to acquiesce, and he does. Now, there does seem to be genuine love and affection in the Abraham-Sarah marriage. And Abra- Sarah does prove obedient to him, even when it demands some really sketchy stuff. But she's also not afraid to put her foot down and make strong demands to which Abraham would submit. And so when we look at the First Peter 3 reference, it's we, we should not take it that she's this kind of doormat type person. Uh, the text absolutely makes it clear that she is absolutely nothing of the sort. And her, the relationship between her and Abraham is very, very interesting. And it's something that we necessarily should not emulate, with a lot of the dynamics at play going on there, and the requests being made and acquiesced to, and uh, things of that sort. And what makes Peter's reference even more interesting and humorous in a way And ironic is that he's quoting her in Genesis 18 and in verse 12. That having heard from this mysterious guest that she would be carrying a son in her arms in a year's time, she laughs. Because it's a raw and real moment. She's 89 years old. She's menopausal. And she has resigned herself to her childlessness. So that hearing this is almost bitter. Like, and that laughter might be tinged with some uh, bitterness. How dare you do this to me after all I've gone through to give me that kind of hope? And she, t- she does call him Lord in the verse. But, I mean, what does she say? She says, uh, After I am worn out, will I have pleasure, especially my husband is old too. It's just, it might even just be laughing at the prospect of having sex with Abraham. The way that she puts it's like I've been worn out with sex with this man for all these years. Now we gonna have it again. Uh, <laughs> that that seems to be what's going on there, and the laugh may just be in her head, because then Yahweh calls her out on it. Did she really laugh and say this? Is anything too hard for me? Uh, but then yeah, Sarah's like, I didn't laugh because she was afraid and she lied. The text says, and Yahweh said, Oh no, you did laugh. Uh, so. We might be aghast at this, because this is a demonstration of piety. Sarah laughed at God, and then she lied to him. This is what Peter is using to commend Sarah? Huh? What? Yeah. Is Sarah acting or thinking impiously? Well, she wasn't struck dead at that moment. The Genesis author is recording all this not to suggest that Sarah is an impious blasphemer, but it's showing the great power of Yahweh in his working. Sarah's not there saying, of course I will, Yahweh God of Abraham promised us that it'll happen, but she finds the whole premise funny, because the prospect of sex and childbirth by somebody at 89 with a husband at 99 is, well, rather funny. And she denied the laugh, because it probably was in her head, and something she didn't actually did, and she was afraid, because how would the guest have been able to know what she was thinking? When the guest of her know you did laugh, maybe this is when Sarah recognizes the guest is not your average dude. That is, in fact, Yahweh himself. So in the one time it is recorded, Sarah herself is in the presence of God. The first woman since Eve to thus stand in God's presence, and the only other woman in Genesis to do so, where it is Yahweh himself, and one of the few women in the whole Bible, Hebrew Bible ever to do so, she laughs in incredulity. And to show the kind of God that we serve, Sarah isn't struck dead, but in fact Yahweh gets the last laugh. Because what happens in Genesis 21 and verse 6, when Isaac is born? Sarah says, God has made me laugh. Everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And the name of her son is She Laughs, Yitzchak, Isaac. So in the name of the son of promise, which Paul is going to describe as a type of resurrection because God brought life where there had been death and the deadness of Sarah's womb in Romans 4, 18 through 22. The memory is preserved of Sarah's laugh. Now, maybe in the end, maybe Peter has a lot more going on. Now, we might imagine by referring to Genesis eighteen twelve as the means by which he demonstrates that Sarah's a holy woman of old, an exemplar of faith, a worn-out old woman who had endured a lot for and from her husband and the God who called him laughing incredulously at God's promise, but then given reason to laugh and rejoicing when Yahweh blessed and vindicated her by means of, she laughs, the son of her old age. And thus we do well to remember and honor Sarah, who is reckoned as the mother of the faithful, as Abraham is the father of the faithful, and to serve the God who brings life where there had once been death i so glad that you've joined us. We'd love to hear any comments you have on Sarah and the way that we've looked at her story and all the kind of interesting things going on with it. And uh, please also subscribe to us where you found us. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for the blessings you've given us, the blessings of, of life and for one another, for every spiritual blessing that you've given us in Jesus, uh, for the material blessings of this creation. Uh, in all good things. We're very thankful for the witness you provided for us in the word and for the examples of the people of old. And We are thankful for the example of Sarah, Father. We pray that you would help us have insight into the ways that we should emulate Sarah and some of the things that perhaps were more difficult or challenging about her example. Uh, We uh, are thankful that she was able to laugh and that you gave her reason to laugh and that you got the last laugh with her when it came to the birth of her son, Isaac. And uh, the promise of hope and the promise of faith that we can find in that, that we can be encouraged in faith and to persevere in faith, Uh, understand that you accomplish your purposes in your good time and that you are able to bring life where there is death. And we have this confidence in the resurrection. We look forward earnestly to the return of your son that we can share in life in the resurrection now and forevermore. These pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're again so glad that you've joined us. We uh, hope that we can be of any kind of encouragement to you. Please reach out to us at venicechurchofchrist.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. Uh, May the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.